Welcome, Judge Robinson, to Shades and Justice Podcast. I'm very excited to have you as our special guest this evening. And we're going to dig right in. I'm going to turn it right over to you and let you share a little bit of your story of how did you become the judge? All right. Well, I am the chief judge of the United States District Court for the District of Kansas. That's a long title. Um, but it, what it means is that I'm the chief judge of the federal courts in Kansas. And I um, always thought I wanted to be a lawyer from the time I was a little girl, even though nobody in my family had gone to law school. We didn't know any lawyers. All I knew about lawyers is what I read and what I watched on television. But I thought that it would be a good match for my interests and my skills. And I think it was. So I, I practiced law for a number of years um, and then I was appointed a United States bankruptcy judge handling bankruptcy cases. I did that for about seven years. And then in 2001, the president appointed, appointed me um, a United States district judge. So uh, United States district judges are federal trial judges. We are appointed by the president for life with the approval of the Senate. So and when you say the president, you mean the president of the United States of America? Yes. All so if right. you've ever um, well, Supreme Court justices, Court of Appeals, and district judges, all federal, we go through the same process. Okay. So the president appoints us with the advice and consent of the Senate, which means I had a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and then I was voted out of that committee, and then, the, and then I stood for a, a vote for the entire United States Senate, and um, I received a unanimous vote. There was one person that wasn't there, so I received 99 votes. And then the president signed my commission. I am appointed for life. Um, and so I've been doing that particular job now for 21 years, almost 21 years. And um, I enjoy it immensely. I, I have civil cases and criminal cases at the trial level. Okay. And which president were appointed you? George W. Bush. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, thank you for sharing that. I just learned a mouthful right then. I, I didn't realize you were appointed by the president and had to go through the judiciary process. Uh, wow, that's uh, that's pretty impressive. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, what kind of inspired you to uh, get into this uh, level of, uh, of uh, the... Uh, appointment. What inspired you to even go for this? Well, I, I right out of law school, I, I was a law clerk for a United States bankruptcy judge. His name was Benjamin Franklin. He was the only African-American bankruptcy judge appointed in Kansas up to that point. Um, there were very few African-American United States bankruptcy judges. And so a law, as a law clerk, I did research and writing for him. He also was my mentor. And he really inspired me to think about becoming a judge. Until then, I had, it had not even occurred to me. And being my mentor, as I then left that clerkship after two years and went on to the United States Attorney's Office, where I was for 11 years, he continued to encourage me and to, th to, to think about um, going for his position when he retired. Well, then he, he died unexpectedly. And I did apply for his position and I did receive his position. So I, I succeeded him on, on the bench. So I would say he was someone that really inspired me. And then after I became a bankruptcy judge, I aspired to the United States District Court to the lifetime appointment. 
And I think primarily because I, I practiced in federal court and I really admired the judges that I practiced in front of. Wow, that is awesome. Uh, I thought it was really different that your mentor was a male. Uh, I thought at some point our listeners may have thought that since you were a female, that there was another woman that may have went side by side. So your story is a little bit different. Well, I can say that early on, I did have a, a female mentor as well. She had mm -hmm. been a law professor of mine, and then she went on and became a federal judge. But I would say that Judge Franklin was primarily my mentor because I worked for him and I knew him so well. And he was so invested in my career. And there were so few women in the legal profession and even fewer as judges that almost all women had male mentors. Um, there just weren't that many women. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, that's, man, that's good stuff. So, so um, after the George Floyd uh, murder and so many things were happening, on the front of America. Um, it made us take just a really good look at what was going on uh, in the uh, justice court world. And um, that's why I thought it would be just an excellent opportunity to hear from a judge kind of what is uh, some of the traits of a good judge. Uh, we have heard uh, judge can be bought. Uh, we have heard judge can be liars. Uh, but uh, I want to hear from a judge what, in your opinion, are traits of a good judge? Well, I think most people that become judges um, do so because they want to um, serve the public. Because mm -hmm. most people can make a lot more money Judges are not paid as much as lawyers in big law firms and lawyers that represent companies and that sort of thing. In fact, a lot of people take a pretty big pay cut to become a judge. So I think that tends to show you that people do this because they really want to serve. Mm -hmm. um, the traits of a good judge are someone that is not biased, not prejudiced, objective mm -hmm. and fair. We take an oath to the rule of law and to the Constitution not to a person, not to a side, not to a president. Um, we are independent, and mm -hmm. that's an important part of our democracy, that our judges are independent, meaning we, don't, we, you know, we can do what we want. No one can remove us from office because they don't like our decisions. And that's important because sometimes the public will is very contrary to what the law is and should be. Mm -hmm. So it's important to have that judicial independence. But a, a good judge is all of the things I've mentioned, fair, objective, um, one that recognizes that they don't know everything, that they haven't experienced the same thing that everyone has that comes in front of them, and so that it's important to listen and learn. Mm -hmm. um, and I think humility is an important part of being a judge. Mm -hmm. uh, judge Robinson, again, I'm learning so much. So you said that most or many attorneys have to take a pay cut to become a judge. Wow. Even yeah, to be yeah. a, a district, United States district chief judge. Yes. And as chief judge, I make the same amount that my colleagues make. I don't make <laughs> for the added responsibilities. But no, um, particularly lawyers that 
are appointed and come from private practice um, okay. and meet them to large size firms, some of mm-hmm. them take a tremendous pay cut to okay. join the federal bench or the state bench. Our state court judges are paid substantially less than the federal judges. In fact, it's pretty sad. I think Kansas is the 49th or 50th state in terms of what we pay our Kansas Supreme Court justices. There are states where city judges, municipal judges make way more than our Supreme Court justices in Kansas make, our state court Supreme Court justices. So these are people that want to serve. They're not motivated by money or they would not be judges. Okay, wow. See, that's that's gonna really say a lot to our listeners. So thank you again for sharing that. So I I read your uh, bio, just a little bit of it. And one of the things I noticed was there were certain things you did not allow in your courtroom. And in my mind, I'm going, oh, I got to find out what that is. So I want to hear from you. What are those things that you do not allow in your courtroom? Well, I would say that most of the things that come to mind are, are things that no judges, for the most part, allow in their courtroom. And some of it is because we have national rules, and some of it is just through experience. So, for example, in the federal courts, we do not allow cameras in the courtroom. Most of the state courts do, but the federal courts have a national rule that does not allow cameras in the courtroom. And there's, um, particularly in criminal cases, never, mm-hmm. but even in civil cases. And... Um, all of the rules that I have about my courtroom really are designed to make people be respectful of one another, mm-hmm. make them be respectful of the court. So, for example, I don't allow people to, to eat or drink in the courtroom, <laughs> which okay. probably shouldn't even have to say. You have to stand to speak. Um, you can't talk over one another. I mean, just really just normal rules of behavior, I think. Um, mm-hmm. You have to be respectful and civil and professional. Um, I don't let the lawyers argue, uh, you know, facing each other, but they're to address their comments to me. And then also we have national rules that really limit and also some local rules that really limit what devices can be brought into the courtroom. Um, We don't want people recording with their cell phones and that sort of thing. So we put limits on what devices can come into the courtroom also. Wow. So if an individual goes into the courtroom uh, do you take their phones? They have to leave them at the back door or they just, or does someone make a statement, say no taping allowed? How do they know? It depends on who they are. Lawyers and jurors, bring, um, they're allowed to bring uh, uh, devices, phones into the courthouse, but uh-huh. jurors leave them in the jury room and lawyers know they're not allowed to record. You know, we trust them. But People of the general public are not allowed to bring their, their um, devices into the courtroom. So they're, they're turned away at the door of the courthouse and told to secure their phones in their cars or something, which causes oh, a lot of grief. But, um, but it's very important we protect the process, too. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, wow, that's, that's pretty cool stuff. Um, so... Uh, what has been uh, one of the things as a judge maybe that has been most challenging for you uh, in your years of service? Oh, everything is challenging. We have caseloads. <laughs> I think people are often surprised to hear how many cases we have. Because oftentimes, for example, people will say, 
well, what's your next case going to be? And I'm like, what do you mean? I have 300 plus cases at any given time. Um, wow. So, yeah, I mean, we, and they're in all stages. I have cases that have just been filed. I have cases that have been on, on file for two, three, four years that, you know, I'm mm-hmm. working on. Um, and so it's very, you, you never run out of work. You never completely catch mm-hmm. up. So one of the challenges is to issue decisions as efficiently and quickly as you can, but at the same time to be thorough and accurate and correct. So mm-hmm. that's a challenge. Um, the, by the type of work I do as a federal trial judge, we get things that are things we've seen before, issues that we've seen before, but we get a lot of things that we've never seen before and that are new mm. and new areas of the law that we have to research and learn. Um, you know, that's one thing that's interesting about my job. I mean, one half of the day, I may be working on a case where I'm trying to learn an area of medicine. Let's just say it's a medical okay. malpractice case. Mm-hmm. And then I may turn from that to doing work on a criminal case and turn from that to doing work on a civil rights case. And so we really are generalists, not mm-hmm. specialists as judges. And that's challenging because we're expected to learn and know just about anything that comes in front of us. Wow. Okay. So I have a, a bunch of uh, judicial terms uh, that I struggle with, or I was amazed to find out uh, their meaning. So I want to hear from the judge, just what do these terms mean? So let's start with the term standing. What, what does that mean in the judicial system? It means whether someone has a sufficient interest in the lawsuit that they have standing. In other words, that they have, um, they have the right to bring that suit. So if I can just give you a very simple example, and there are lots of complicated examples, and um, this can become a very complicated issue. But let's just say a car comes barreling down the street and it crashes into your next door neighbor's house. Mm-hmm. Doesn't crash into your house, doesn't touch your property, doesn't hurt your trees or anything like that. And the neighbor sues the owner of that car for negligence, causing damage to their house. I'm the next door neighbor, but I've suffered no injury, so I don't have standing to, to file a lawsuit as well. On the other hand, if that car crashed in my neighbor's house, but it also took some limbs off my tree or caused me some sort of property damage, then I probably would have standing because I have suffered an injury that can be addressed through a lawsuit. Okay. Okay. That, okay. So standing means uh, either I do have loss, I have experienced the loss that I can foul suit with. That's what standing actually means. Right. It means that you have harmed or injured or you suffered a loss, some kind of damage that can be addressed through a lawsuit. That's a definition. Okay. And could you explain wrongful death? Wrongful death is really a more of a civil law concept. Um, so if, again, if, if when that car crashed into the neighbor's house, somebody was in the house and died, that's a wrongful death Mm -hmm. in the sense that somebody caused that person's death. It doesn't mean that they had to intend to kill the person. It just means that that person died because of the hand of someone else. That's considered a wrongful death because of some negligence. It can be because someone intentionally killed them but it also can be because someone was negligent and that caused their death. Okay. So I I won't mention any names, uh, 
there was a high profile um, case where a, uh, a plane went down and uh, everybody in the plane had been killed. So um, would that be considered a wrongful death? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. And in that instance, you might see the, the, um, the next of kin, the heirs of the people that died. They uh -huh. might sue the pilot or the company that employed the pilot. They oh. might sue the aircraft manufacturer if they thought there was something wrong with the manufacturer of the plane. Um, okay. Or if they thought it was pilot error or some maintenance problem, they might sue the company that last did maintenance on the plane as well. Wow. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, how about uh, this one? Uh, how are damages... Uh, those amounts determine who determines the amount of damage. Uh, well, it really depends on the type of lawsuit. Okay. Um, in most cases, if the case goes to trial, it's the jury that's going to determine the damages. Mm -hmm. There are, and it, it, this is all really driven by the type of claim someone brings and whether mm -hmm. it's brought under a statutory law. Mm -hmm or whether it's brought under common law. And I can, I can explain that further. But um, in most instances, it's the jury. But sometimes um, in certain types of lawsuits, the jury will answer certain questions about the damages. And then from there, the judge will calculate the damages. Mm -hmm. And there are some types of lawsuits where the judge determines the damages. But damages are generally in three different categories. There's economic damages, non-economic damages, and punitive damages. Economic damages, or you have lost your wages, or you have lost property, you've lost that house that got crashed in, and you're going to have to spend a lot of money to fix it. Those are economic. Non-economic damages, you often hear called things like pain and suffering, mm -hmm. emotional distress, mm -hmm. those kinds of damages that are not, you know, money, but yet they are worth money because of mm -hmm. the, you know, what's happened to you. And then punitive damages are damages that really are not that common, um, but they're damages that are designed to um, deter whoever committed the wrong, to deter them from, from doing something like that again. In other okay. words, let's say that the, the, the airplane manufacturer knew there was a defect in that airplane. Yes. To deter them from not taking care of that problem, mm -hmm. um, punitive damages might be awarded. Okay. 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 That sounds... That sounds very reasonable. Okay, now this is a big word for me. Please explain adjudication. <laughs> it's a big word, but it's pretty simple. It means a decision, a judgment. It actually means two things. It means the process of reaching the judgment, and then it also means the judgment or the decision itself. That's all. So if you bring a lawsuit, and that lawsuit is adjudicated, that means that the decision maker has made a decision. The decision maker may be the judge or it may be the jury if the case went to trial. Okay, all right. Okay, um, every state has its own laws and protocols for judicial services. Is it possible for the judicial system to have national statutes where criminals get the same punishment for the same crime? Actually, we have that. So there are two, really two um, types of government structures in the United States. Each state is what we call its own sovereign. It's, it, it's mm -hmm. its own thing. 
Each mm-hmm. state has its own laws, all 50 of them, separate mm-hmm. individual, sometimes very different laws. And then there's a system of United States laws, federal laws. I'm a federal judge, so I generally mm-hmm. deal with federal laws. So, for example, in, uh, with, um, in criminal cases, um, the, the people are prosecuted under federal criminal laws, not state criminal laws. And those are the okay. same matter where. And then we have federal sentencing guidelines, which are an attempt to make as uniform as possible the sentence someone receives. Mm -hmm. But sentencing is difficult because you might have, let's say you have a bank robber and two different bank robbers. And you might think, well, they should receive the same amount of Mm -hmm. time. But there's Mm -hmm. so many other things because every person is an individual and there are individual factors you have to consider. One person may have a lengthy criminal history this person may have, this may have been the first time they did it. One person okay. may have shot somebody. This person may not have had a weapon. I mean, there's so many, you have to take into account everything. Okay. Um, said that there is, there has been for many years now an attempt to make sentences as uniform as reasonably possible. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. I often wondered about that. Um, let's see. Uh, in your opinion, uh, what is the solution to correct the disproportionate number of blacks and brown individuals who are in jail for lack of bail funds that have extended over years? All right, well, let me just say at the outset, and of course, a lot of people became aware of this because of the situation in Ferguson, which was something that happened at the municipal court level. For since 1987, I think it's or 1984. Since the 1980s in the federal system, we haven't had this problem because Congress passed the Bail Reform Act. So if you're charged with the federal crime, it's usually the magistrate judge that makes this decision. Do you get out on bond or are you detained pending trial? You're detained pending trial if they think there's a risk of flight or a risk of safety to the community if you're out. Otherwise, you are bonded out. And I would say 95, 99% of people that are bonded out are bonded out on zero dollars. They don't have to post any cash at all. The abuses that we've seen uh, that came to light, I think for a lot of people in Ferguson are these systems, state court and municipal systems that for really minor situations and minor crimes require people to pay bonds. And and it's it's really... um, an unequal system, it's unfair to people that don't have money. And so they are detained simply because they can't come up with a bond. And I will tell you that there are reforms underway there, at least at the state court level, there's commissions in a lot of states Mm -hmm. that are looking at this and seeking to change the laws, but the laws have to be changed by the legislature because that's where the laws come from in terms of, you know, the, uh, what happens, you know, when bond is set and all of that, that's all a function of, of the state legislature. Mm-hmm. So just on the federal level, Congress fixed, our Congress fixed the problem, the United States Congress, the state legislatures need to fix the problem with their state laws. Okay. That, that's interesting. And so, um, uh, a, a lot of times those, uh, legislators, um, may or may not want to change the laws, you know, for various reasons, uh, or it may be a political issue. If, if, you know, if one thing doesn't happen, then we're not going to do this or something like that. But it's interesting that um, what you said is at the state level that these changes need to be made. So 
uh, our uh, listeners need to know that we need to go to our legislators and try to get some of this change. Okay. And they are elected officials. And the way you do that is you, you have a voice, you talk to them, you write them, you go see them and you vote. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's right. Okay. All right. Um, this, this question is uh, something I, I really toiled with in my mind over time. Uh, I, I, just, I just didn't understand it. Uh, I'm going to read it to you. Um, since certain products are being sold legally now and are taxed, how do we address those in prison who have sold the same products or who were caught with possession of the product and were sentenced to prison for 15, 20 years? That's a great question. And again, the answer is with the legislature because the legislature, whether it's the United States Congress or the state legislatures, they're the ones that set the penalties and they're the ones that can change the penalties They're the ones that can change the law and make it retroactive, which would go backwards and people that are serving prison sentences could be released. And we have seen over the years this happen, not with respect to marijuana, because at least under federal law, marijuana is still illegal. But we have seen it happen with other at the federal level with Congress going back and making changes to the federal Uh sentencing statutes and making them retroactive. So. For example, there's still a disparity between crack cocaine sentences and powder cocaine sentences, but that disparity is not as is not as great as it was 30 years ago. Congress a couple of times has changed that disparity, changed the law, and then made it retroactive, which meant people that were serving sentences that shouldn't have served sentences that long were immediately released. And that can happen at the state level as well. And it probably, my guess is it will. Um, there, of course, as you know, there are a number of states where marijuana is legal now. Yes. If marijuana becomes legally as the law of the United States federally, I would expect that Congress would do something to make there be relief retroactive. I will tell you, though, at least in the federal system, we don't see a lot of marijuana cases anyway. We never see possession cases. Those are done. Wow. In the okay. That's the only so- marijuana cases we get, and there are very few and far between are ones with pretty massive amounts. Okay. You know, okay. a ton or, you know, something like that, 300, 400 <laughs> pounds in a big truck or something like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, these were questions that was really uh, on my mind and I just knew I've had other people uh, ask me uh, kind of, you know, like what's happening uh, uh, judicially with, especially with the product, you know, with drugs. Uh, so, and this is just my opinion, the war war on drugs uh, that started back in the 70s or 80s, I often wonder, was that really war on drugs or war on people of color who were <laughs> being exposed to those uh, products. So that's, that's a question uh, we'll have to continue to uh, investigate. So what is, uh, I asked you earlier about uh, what was some of the challenges and you said, well, you know, uh, it's challenges every day. I, I was surprised to hear over 300 cases. Wow. And, and uh, so with all of that, what has been something that uh, you are the most proud of or thankful for that you had an opportunity 
to do uh, since you've been a federal uh, district judge? Well, some of them are would probably probably be something that doesn't sound huge. Um, you know, one of the things I do, I have criminal cases and I sentence people. And that's a difficult thing to do always because you're affecting not only their life, you're affecting mm-hmm. the lives of their children, their family, the mm-hmm. community um, who maybe has already been affected by their criminal behavior. That's why they've been charged, but it's still difficult. And some, there have been times that I've really had joy because after I've sentenced someone and then found out what happened to them, because what we really want most in the system is not to punish people, but to get people on track. And once people come out of prison, they're still involved with the court for a few years because they're under our supervision. We help them find jobs. We have a great probation office, help them find jobs. Some people need a place to live. We get them drug and alcohol treatment. And over the years, I've had a number of people um, that have written me letters while they're in prison to tell me how they're doing, what training they're getting. Some of them have come to see me after they get out of prison, which is always a great joy because my hope and prayer for everyone I sentence is that this is going to be the beginning of a new chapter in their lives. What I want to see happen to everyone is that they're healthy and happy. They're not hurting themselves. They're not hurting others. So those are some of the things Um, There's been a fairly recent case that has been significant and high profile that I, you know, I'm glad I was involved in. And it it had to do with requirements. Kansas passed a statute that said that you had to prove your citizenship in order to register to vote. And, you know, there are a number of people that just can't get their hands on their birth certificate. Maybe they were born in a different state. Maybe they didn't have a birth certificate, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe they don't have the money to order up a birth certificate. It costs money to order birth certificates. So this was a real obstruction to people, um, people that tend to be mobile, people that are impoverished, students, younger people, older people. It was just there were Kansas struck 30,000 people from the voter registration rolls. Based on 30,000, 30,000 based on this law. So a lawsuit was brought. I enjoined the striking of those 30,000 people. The bottom line is I found that that law was unconstitutional and that people did not have to prove their citizenship. They could just sign under oath. Like you sign under oath for a lot of documents. documents. You can now people thought that that was a voter ID law. That was not a voter ID law. You still have to, when you go to the polls, you have to prove you are, you know, show your driver's license, voter, I mean, your state ID card or whatever. But, but this was an attempt to block people from even, even registering to vote unless they could produce a birth certificate or an immigration certificate, a certificate or something like that. Oh my goodness. Well, wow. Bless you for that. That is awesome. Uh, and, and I noticed um, um, the whole voter registration thing had got a little bit toxic over the last couple years. So to know that you were able to step in and be a part of uh, identifying that piece of legislation as uh, being unconstitutional, Kudos to you and the rest of the team that got that done. That's some good work that uh, you all got done. Well, it's important that people, we have these rights. It's important that people register and it's important that they vote. (laughs) Amen. That's so good. Well, we're right at 729. 
Is there anything else you'd like to share? This has been very educational for me. I felt like I didn't even scratch the surface. Uh, I can just tell you're loaded with information and I might not have asked the right questions, but at least I'm heading in the right direction. Anything else you'd like to share? Well, I think all of your questions have been great. And I would always be happy to come back if you have more questions um, at some time. Um, I think lawyers and judges, we, you know, we feel like people don't learn in high school, college, whatever, whatever level, don't learn that much about government and civics and the courts. And so it's very important to us to be educators and to help people understand because we want people to be engaged in government, including the judicial system. Mm -hmm. um, and trust the system. And it's hard to trust something you don't understand. So that's yeah. part of our mission is to educate. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. I had uh, two or three other uh, high profile cases in my head. But what I will do is uh, check back in with you and see if this is something we can discuss uh, that might help uh, listeners learn more about the judicial system. So thank you again. Your Honorable Chief District Judge Robinson, I certainly appreciate your time and uh, your knowledge and your patience with me uh, here on Shades Injustice Podcast. Thank you again. My pleasure. Best wishes. Best wishes to you.